Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Grace Sutanto, professor of systematic theology, Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and our academic dean, and Professor Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament and our Dean of Students here at the DC campus. And we're gonna continue on today in our series on reading strategies or reading guides for individual biblical books. We've done Genesis and Deuteronomy. We've done Mark. And now we're gonna do our second New Testament book, the first letter, the first epistle of the Catholic or general epistles of Peter. Okay, so First Peter. So we're going to get going today with a book that I think is absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and raises all kinds of fun questions and is used in all kinds of interest, interesting doctrinal conversations. So we'll bring you in, Gray, since you don't read the Bible unless it's a proof text from one of your systematic theologies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Preach know. it. Thanks yep. for calling me out. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. Appreciate truth it. Hurts. Truth hurts, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. So we'll try to find something that is relevant to Gray's line of study in today's discussion. But let me start off with our resident New Testament professor, Dr. Tommy Keene. Tommy, as we were setting this up, you said First Peter is one of my books. Yeah, belatedly, you know, one of the things that you do when you get a, a PhD is they make you specialize um, in, a, in a section of canon. So you don't get to just jump into what you what you want to study. You got to study around what you want to study first. And uh, it's very common for Hebrews, which was which was what I wanted to study, to get bundled with the Catholic epistles, right? So um, James, the, the Petrine epistles, the Johannine epistles, and Revelation kind of get together. Um, and so I found myself studying First Peter and uh and then teaching First Peter and falling in love with First Peter as just a book that is not only timeless in its uh, in its theology in in the manner of its writing uh, Catholic in the sense that it's it's to a broad audience spread across the Roman world and so it has a kind of general applicability to it but also timely as I think about our own cultural moment. And the struggle that we as Christians have to live in the world. I think about RTS in particular, your the Institute of Theology and Public Life. I think about the kinds of questions that uh, we ask here in the Capitol about how, how to be a Christian in a public space. And First Peter, um, amongst many things that it tries to do, is give Christians a orientation to living as to 11 and 12 puts it to, uh, to living among the Gentiles, what that looks like, how to navigate that. And so in addition to being that timeless theological, uh, ethical orientation, it's also very appropriate and applicable to, uh, to us in the modern day. Yeah, it's one of those books I, I keep finding myself going back to and even kind of being struck how much time I spend in it because it illuminates so much of that conversation, particularly as you said about public theology. Now we called it we, we've we've called it Catholic. We called it general epistle. Like, what is that referring to? What, what is that distinction that's being made there when you talk about this as a Catholic epistle? Well, it's a Catholic epistle because it's applying itself to a general audience, right? So, same with the Book of James, it's addressed to diaspora. With Peter, it's addressed to suffering Christians who are living among the Gentiles here under the Roman 
empire. And so this is unlike, let's say, Paul's epistles is addressing particular problems in, let's say, 1 Corinthians. It's addressing very specific problems with regard to the church in Corinthia, right? Whereas in, in Peter and James, it's addressing particular problems to a broad range of Christians rather than just one particular church. It's not to the Galatians, it's not to the Colossians, it's not to the Ephesians, but rather it's to these Christians right now living in this Roman Empire. And it's interesting. I mean, it, it even says to God's elect. I mean, right. you had more, more general can you get, right? To God's elect, the, the sojourner strangers in the world scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I mean, this is very, this, this is a book for God's people. And you're right. It's got, this is general. We should expect transcendent teaching that's not localized down to one specific individual location, but is, is transcendent, is transcultural, is speaking across the whole of God's elect. Yeah. And that is an interesting thing. We we should think about that. It's not real localized. This is speaking generally. So we so we should read it accordingly, right? Particularly if we're talking about yep. having a reading strategy for a book. We read it accordingly. And as it is addressing the elect, it's interesting that one of the first things that Peter says is that your suffering would be like gold that is put through the fire, right? That you would actually suffer as elect people of God. That election, even though it does give you assurance of salvation, right? It doesn't actually save you from suffering. So that's an interesting point there to make that as Christians, this is something we should expect rather than something that should surprise us necessarily. Right. And that that even that analogy or metaphor, of course, this is not the first time we've heard that, right? Which is another theme that's going to come up through the Petrine epistolary, right? The letters of Peter is this idea that that that, that analogy of, of a cleansing fire for a precious metal is exactly what Isaiah uses to talk about exiles. He says the righteous remnant is going to go into exile too with the apostate, but for them, it's not going to be unto death and destruction. It's going to be unto life and purification, right? In Isaiah 1, where he talks about the silver having the dross wiped away. And Peter's going to come back and he's going to say, you all are exiles. You're exiles in the kingdom. It, it's it's a, He says it right up there at the beginning, um, you are elect exiles. Um, uh, actually, these, these first few prepositional phrases there all modify the, the chosenness. You are chosen as exiles, you're chosen by the blood, you're chosen for sprinkling. These are all modifying the idea of, of, of the choosing. Um, and right at the beginning, I mean, almost the first way in which he defines his audience is as exiles in the diaspora. And it's, it's a really interesting metaphor that he weaves throughout the epistle. And it's, it's so, you mentioned Isaiah, there's, there's so much of prophetic language here, so much Old Testament language to define the people of God. In uh, later on in two, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, it's led some to conclude that First Peter must be written to actual Jewish exiles in the diaspora, Christian Jews in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. I, I think the solution is a bit different. I think it, it's written to a more general audience, perhaps both Jew and Gentile, but maybe, but probably more actually skewed to Gentiles in the diaspora. Uh, in chapter one, he just, he says that you do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Huh. And it's hard for me to imagine yeah, a Jewish like a Christian. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, that's how Jews talk about Gentiles. And 
you were once a you were once not a people, now you are a people. But as he's talking about these Gentiles, he's applying classic Old Testament people of God language to them. He he's talking to them as if they're Jews mm-hmm. living in exile, even though this is probably their home country. Mm-hmm. The fact that they've been, that they've been chosen by God, the fact that they have been the fact that they are elect has alienated alienated them from the rest of the world from their own families from their own forefathers you have a new father now and so now with respect to your biological father you are an alien you are outside the camp as it were i wonder to what extent the Jew, uh, not jewish excuse me the the gentile readers would appreciate the those old testament references i mean the the book is so saturated yeah uh, with uh, Old Testament allusions, you know, we just looked at chapter two, the Exodus nineteen language. You got Hosea, you've got Isaiah. You know, I don't know. Uh, could a Gentile reader appreciate and understand what those those things are saying? Yeah, it's it's the same argument that's sometimes used of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews, there's so many references to the Old Testament. It's so Old Testamenty. It has to be Gentile can't be expected to know all this. It has to be to the Jews, Jewish Christians. And it's it's interesting. You know, I read the letters of Paul, like Galatians and Philemon, and these are letters that are obviously written to Gentiles, and yet Paul expects them to be familiar with the Old Testament. He, he almost addresses them as having a full <laughs> synagogue-level education on Old Testament literature in some respects. So there seems to be... I look at that nice in the New Testament let letters to the Gentiles, and it seems like the writers have a high degree of expectation of their familiarity with the Old Testament. Perhaps they, uh, you know, it's something to do, you know, make these references. Then as a, a Gentile converts are growing in their knowledge of Scripture holistically, canonically, yeah. in the fullest sense, they can go back, read Hosea or, you know, and then uh, embrace it as their scripture and realize, oh, actually, you know, when Peter was saying this in yeah. his letter, uh, he was actually referring to this and talking about us. I mean, Peter, this should warm the cockles of your heart. I mean, it seems like the in the ancient world, the Paul and Peter and all of these guys were teaching Gentiles about the Old Testament nonstop. They were all Old Testament. Oh, you got me. I have nothing to say. <laughs> well, you got, you have that tradition developed throughout the New Testament, don't you? Where you, whether you're looking at Romans nine through eleven, where Paul's developing this idea of Israel of the promise versus is, true Israel versus Israel merely of the flesh. Mm-hmm. You've got passages like this one, and according to the gospel writers, who are writing at a later time and yet reflecting back on the teaching of Jesus, Jesus himself was talking this way. He was saying to the Syrophoenician woman, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He's John 15. You know, he's saying, I'm, I'm the true vine. If you want to be in the vine and what's the vine in the old Testament, it's always Israel. It's always the people of God. If you want to be in the vine, you need to be in me. And, you know, I, when I hear somebody, when I hear like a, a scholar say, well, you couldn't have expected these Gentiles to know Torah if to remember, if, if this is true, if Jesus was welcoming in mm-hmm. Gentile followers, then they've mm-hmm. had decades. They've had more time than I've had to study Torah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I may, maybe not be so surprised that they're familiar with the famous passages like 
all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. But the Lord, the word of the Lord endures forever. And that he can just drop that in the middle of, you know, what is that? Chapter one, verse 24, without even saying, as the prophet Isaiah says, he just drops it right in the middle as if it's his own words, alluding back to this Old Testament passage. And I don't think it's, it should be too surprising that decades have passed and Gentiles have been flowing in and they've been studying the scriptures that Jesus said spoke of him. Yeah. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the audience and who this letter is written to, but one of the next things you need to do in a in a reading strategy, right, is to come up with uh, what's the structure of this book? Does it follow a tight structure? Is it kind of a more loose, capricious style as some books and some letters can be, um, you know, or does it follow a really tight literary rhetorical uh, map? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I'm in I'm in a great season of grading right now, and when I'm grading papers, the thing I want is a very clear thesis statement, right? Something that I can just hang everything off of the paper. Um, does First Peter have a good, clear thesis statement? And if you're not familiar with like, like Greek styles of rhetoric, you might not immediate. It might not be immediately obvious what the thesis statement is, but uh, First Peter is very rhetorically savvy, and seems to have a Peter seems to have a writing strategy from beginning to end. Flows really well. People who love discourse analysis and outlining are going to love First Peter because it does break up very co- uh, coherently. Um, and when you, I, I and when you um, break it up in that way, the the hinge point. The, the verse or set of verses that are kind of at the middle are um, are Second uh, Peter 2. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to start over. When you outline it, when you look at it, there's this hinge point that arises, this, this midpoint. Peter is doing largely indicative kind of stuff in First Peter 1. Who are you? You are, the, you are children of the Father. You are a chosen nation, a, ro- a royal priesthood. And then in the second section of the book, he's, he's what you should be. Um, here's what you should do. Be who you are kind of stuff. And there's a, two verses right at the middle, right in between those two sections. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passage of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a wonderful, he doesn't say the thesis of this is, but it's a one, it wonderfully encapsulates everything that Peter does in this book. On the one hand, because we're firstborn children of the Father, because we've been born again to a living hope, as he puts it in First Peter 1, We are to emulate our Father. We are to be holy as He is holy. We are to, one, abstain from the passions of the flesh. But insofar as we are children of the Father, we are now aliens with respect to our earthly fathers. We're aliens with respect to the culture around us. And that means that we have been grafted into the new people of God, and everyone around us is now a Gentile. And so keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And so this this reflects the next the rest of the book. Um, the rest of the book is how Christians should conduct themselves in a world that opposes them. 
and what they should do about it, how they, how they, how then they should live amongst the Gentiles, bringing honor to God and blessing to the cities in which they live. Amen. Uh, it's pre- I mean, that preaches so well and, and, and so relevant if you think about it even now, mm-hmm. just cause you know, if whatever concept of, uh, uh, of a Christendom that we may have been in, you know, when that ended, I, you know, it could be debated, but it's pretty clear it's over. And now we really are kind of, um, you know, Peter saying it to his audience and perhaps, um, and it's, and it rings so true today that we are, you know, spiritual sojourners, exiles. We are in wilderness, you know, the way that Hebrews puts it. And, uh, and for that reason, it helps us to know how to engage by knowing our identity in relation to the world uh, and to know how to draw comfort from the gospel in that in that context. Um, you know, I published a little bit on First Peter, and one thing that I've always been so uh, intrigued by is sort of a, I guess if I, I ne- I've never said it this way, but maybe like a Petrine union with Christ mm-hmm. type thing that is... Um, I don't think it's that Paul doesn't do this, but it's so clear in, in Peter where, you know, uh, Christ was a sojourner, thus you in union with Christ are sojourners, you know, that uh, he was a, a living stone, so you in union with Christ are living stones. Even the reference he makes to Isaiah, the suffering servant, at the end of chapter 2, he, he describes it in such a way that you, you're not sure who he's describing. Is he describing Christ? Or is he describing the church? Yeah. You know, it's sort of this union, in union with Christ, that Isaiah 53 passage, in a sense, could be, um, you know, describing you as as the church. Uh, and, um, you know, even in the the, the shepherd at, towards the end, as he's talking about elders, you know, you are shepherds, but Christ was the chief shepherd. I can't quite recall the phrase he uses there. But, yeah, it's uh, easy, yeah. Uh, and you know, it, it really is this sort of, you know, Jesus is the one was, who was the first sojourner and he suffered in a fallen world that was corrupt. Uh, you will follow in his steps in union with Christ. You also will suffer. Uh, and thus in union with Christ, maintain your integrity and, and live as holy and, and righteous people. One of the things I really like about how Peter goes about this in the chapters that follow is he gets very specific. You've got this general, right? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, but then he gets very specific in how that's done. And and we get what's called a household code in what follows. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. Servants be subject to your masters, uh, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. You get these these series of kind of social relationships. It's a reminder that we're not an island, right? That um, I, I recently heard a pa- pastor say, you are who you are. You are who you really are when you're alone. Well, okay, I get what's being said there, but that's not the that's not the biblical vision. You are a set of relationships. You are uh, built to be in community. And where our Christian conduct really intersects with the world is these basic relationships that underlie our lives. Our relationship with our spouses, our relationship to uh, uh, educational institutions, to uh, civil magistrates, civil magistrates, to businesses, to all of these are what really—it's it, it, the realm in which we live our life. And Peter gets specific; he gives specific principles 
um, in how to do that. That the, there's an interest. There's also an interesting kind of counterculture that he develops here. If I can go on just a little bit, one of the there's another controversial passage here in uh, in First Peter, another stumbling block passage. Actually, two servants be subject to your masters. Likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. These are two passages that our modern world looks at, and they say, see. Peter is just propping up the old Roman hierarchical system of oppression, old Roman theory of power. Um, everybody, you, you should live as you were created to be. If you're under power, you should submit to that power. And this props up a kind of system of oppression. Uh, interestingly, though, Peter, uh, Peter's household code, unlike those produced by Romans and Greeks, is upside down. He, he addresses servants first. He addresses them directly. He addresses them Christologically. He gives that, you mentioned it, Peter. He gives that, um, that Christological hymn almost there. Um, Have this in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, he, he did this. Jesus did this, um, suffering even at this, even to, to, uh, under injustice. Um, why does Peter do that? Well, it's because in Peter's worldview, the emperor, is not the model citizen. It's not the emperor to whom everyone should conform. Rather, it is Christ. And what did Christ do? He came to serve, not to be served. He humbled himself and became obedient, sub subject to every human institution, even unto death for the sake of his people. And so the model of Christian society is not the master, but the servant. We come to serve. Um, and should conduct ourselves accordingly. So that that that's powerfully countercultural. It's powerfully anti-Roman. That at the root of of our our society and our behavior is this idea that others are better and more important than myself. So as we're going through these human relationships that he draws our attention to, what do we start with? Servants and the people they work for, citizens and the rulers wives to husbands. Mm -hmm. And then what's interesting to me, you then have this, you have this breakout where we'll come back and talk about it in a second, but this breakout about the, the souls that were in prison in the time of Noah. Right. But then he interestingly ends the book kind of abruptly. He, he goes back to this human relationship thing and he ends with elders yeah. and young men. And he says, young men, you know, don't be prideful, but submit to elders. Don't you know that God opposes the proud? Citing in the Old Testament, and then he kind of ends abruptly at the end of the book. What are your thoughts on that? Is he is he just kind of he set up who you are, and then he said, and who you are should affect what you do in these different relationships, and that's all I have to say. Or is there is there kind of a development there? Uh, there is. I, I think it, it's a nice capstone. So the I would see the overall organization here as you've got the general exhortation. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Then honor in these various social relationships. And then he switches to suffering, how to suffer well. Um, he asks, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is doing good? And of course, all of us know, actually, there's a lot of people who will harm you. It seems like a rhetorical question. Um, Peter recognizes it's a rhetorical question. Plenty of people will harm us precisely because we're desirous of doing good. And so in 3.13, all the way to the passage you mentioned, we have this extended discussion of suffering. 
and how to suffer well and how to suffer Christ-like in a Christ-like manner. And then in five, I think he's zooming back. Well, in five, he's switching then to the church as church. Um, you, you've got individuals as individuals and how they are to live in the world. And then there's, in five, he's kind of summarizing that for how, how then does the church encourage and work with you in this, in this endeavor? So shepherds and then those who are underneath them provides a nice ecclesiological kind of capstone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, yeah, I think he's basically done. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, we've, we've done the, those are the things that we need to do. And then he, yeah. he, he sends his and, and it's interesting. He assumes, I mean, we talk about, oh, this is just affirming the, you said this accusation that it's affirming the status quo. It's actually assuming that there is a temptation of youth yep. to oppose the older, yep. the older, the elder man. And he says, don't give into it. That's the temptation, but don't give into that temptation. That's not the better thing. And it's been that way for a long time. He uses that kind of argument from precedence, you know, these God's been calling us to live this way for a long time. This isn't, this isn't new in Jesus that now we have a new model of it. There is a big theological question. There, actually, First Peter contains, it, it's a very readable book overall, but it contains one of the hardest passages uh, in the New Testament, uh, th- 3.18 through 22, where Jesus apparently descends into hell and, redeem, and, and proclaims the gospel to a people there. Uh, Gray, any insights into that one? Well, I know that retrieval right now is a big movement, and there's particular movements within retrieval that's seeking to retrieve this doctrine of Jesus' descent to hell. And um, this is one of the passages where they would say, supports that particular view, First Peter 3, 18 to 22, where it says that Jesus went to preach to the spirits, and there's talk here about Noah. Lots of people are wondering about what this passage means. And it might possibly mean that Jesus did apparently descend to hell uh, after he had died and awaiting his resurrection. Where did Jesus go? That's the question of his his descent to hell. And, and so there's particular nuances to that, whether or not this hell is referring to the Old Testament notion of um, Sheol or something mm-hmm. like that, and whether or not this passage is supporting that or whether we can get the doctrine from other passages. But I was really influenced in, in reading this passage in light of uh, a former professor of mine. His name is Darian Lockett. Uh, a Presbyterian professor at Biola University. I remember having him as a sort of sole Presbyterian professor that I had there at Biola. So um, hats off to him and shout out to Darian. Uh, He's become a good friend. And and his reading of this passage um, argued in in a couple of monographs of his would be that this is not in reference to Jesus' descent to hell in between his death and resurrection, but it's actually in reference to Jesus' ascent. And in his ascent... To the heavenly places after his resurrection he was proclaiming victory over the demons this is what going to be in correspondence with what paul says that in in jesus's death and resurrection he had uh, put to shame the principalities of powers of this world and so where is he getting that really quickly verse 19 uh, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison um, is sequentially after he was made alive in the spirit which uh he would take to to mean his resurrection made alive in the spirit there referring to his resurrection so after he was put to death in the flesh made alive namely resurrected he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison so spirits in prison doesn't refer to old testament saints in this reading but rather refers to 
actually the demonic presence that are here on earth being alluded to as sort of being being captive here and they've been thrown off and they're ro they're roaming around as principalities of power of this present age and he's proclaiming victory over them and the allusion to the days of noah would be in reference to genesis chapter 6 and the particular demonic presence there of the 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 the, the angelic presence that has cohab have, have cohabited with the daughters of men so lots of controversial things about that move. Um, Darian was not dogmatic about it. Um, but I continued to hold on to that sort of view, sort of tentatively, until I read a passage in Hermann Bovink. In Reformed Dogmatics, in the particular section on Christology, uh, Bovink would appeal to this passage, and he argued that this is not the passage where you would get that Jesus descended to Sheol or to Hades or to hell. But rather, in this passage, he's talking about the ascension of Jesus and the victory of Jesus over the demonic presences as well. And I remember just emailing Darian uh, that passage from, from Boving and saying, hey, actually, Boving supports that sort of minority mm -hmm. reading of this particular text. So I wonder what you all think about that passage and that reading of this passage. Yeah, there's there the other view, by the way, that, so you've got the dissensus view um, as kind of a c classic enshrined into the the even the creeds of the church, perhaps. You've, you've got the... This newer view, um, which builds off actually some illusions, you know, how do we know that the spirits in prison are demonic spirits? Where does that language come from? Well, part of the argument is that this is something that's in the air. You see it in First Enoch, for example, the imprisoning of the of of the demonic angels in Genesis six. Mm -hmm. um, they are thrown into the depths of the ocean to kind of imprison them because that's where you throw all evil rings or you know, things like that. You throw it into the ocean to bury it. Uh, so you've got some Old Testament stuff, uh, some intertestamental stuff there that kind of confirms that that view that you just articulated, Gray. The other possibility is that this is a reference to kind of a pre-incarnate Christ, a pre a, an appearance of Christ prior to the incarnation. In support of that, we've got Jude 5. Jude 5, Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt, it seems like there's a pre-incarnate view there maybe represented. So those those are the kind of the three big options. Yeah. Um, I like the one that you articulated best. And, and didn't Second Peter use First Enoch as well? Second Peter has a nod to First Enoch, as does Jude. Yeah. yeah. I rest my case. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't think we can be dogmatic about, about the particular readings here because it is a tough passage, isn't it? I take votes in class. When we do this in class, I take I, we give the three views and I take votes, and uh, the dissensus view is a regular winner. Hmm. Well, I take votes in presbytery. If they don't okay. take my view, we fail them in their presbytery exams. Okay. That was a joke. The IPC <laughs> does not do that. It is one of those teachings that's kind of enshrined in even Protestant Christian belief and has that kind of feel of medieval theology mm -hmm. and interpretation. You know, one thing that is interesting, at least as far as I'm sure, I'm not, I'm not a I'm not a scholar of the early Apostles' Creed, but from my own research into it, I don't think that he did he crucified, died and was buried, he descended into hell. I don't think that occurs together the he died and was buried and the he descended into Hades language it does not occur until later editions mm -hmm. right. of the creed early on it was thought that he descended into hell was really kind of a 
meaning the same thing as was buried, right? He was put into the underworld. Right, as a, as a single act. As a single act. It was later, and, pro- and you can see how this would happen in textual transmission. You'd put two similar, similarly worded phrases next to each other in order to preserve both traditions. And, you know, without that, if you think about it, without that, this the doctrine of this descent into hell between the death and resurrection of Christ probably would not exist. Mm-hmm. This passage alone is way, way too difficult and 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 shrouded. Yeah. You know, and I get that it's it's something that's held on to because people have this concept of what Jesus did in his death and and the the fact of his suffering is being the full suffering for sin for all of the elect. The fact of it is, is it, is it as if he was in hell, descended into hell? Absolutely. Right. And yet it's this kind of spatial ontological idea right. that, that really is preserved possibly because of this kind of doubling up of language mm-hmm. in the Apostles' Creed. You know, I've always thought it was interesting to me about this whole passage, apart from what it's saying about what Jesus did, is that first Peter, I mean, here in first Peter, the author is, um, is saying that you can almost like divide up redemptive history into t- three major phases before the flood, mm-hmm. between the flood and Christ, <laughs> you know, and then everything after Christ's resurrection, yeah, yeah. you know, which is also an interesting redemptive history that as an Old Testament theologian, we don't often use as kind of like the major epochs of redemptive history. Yeah. And yet there's a sense in which you can kind of see, I mean, where else have we seen a global judgment with a baptismal redemption through yep. death and emergence on the other side, other than in the family of Noah. And that seems to me to be kind of the overarching point that he's making here. And that's why, I mean, I, I, I like the, I like the idea that it says, how was he risen? He's risen in the spirit. This is the same spirit who proclaimed to Noah in his day. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what it says. It doesn't say that he, um, that he descended into hell or something like that at this point, but that the spirit that is identified with the raising up, that is the spirit of Christ is the means by which the word of the Lord, La Halagos preached to Noah and to the people of his day, you know? And back to like reading strategies, you've got these different, you've got this passage that's really challenging and can be a, a bit of a stumbling block. You can hit this and be like, Oh, I guess I don't understand first Peter. But that's not the conclusion you should come to because this this passage is itself, it's bounded by some very simple words. So you've got this, uh, it opens with for Christ. And that little word for tells you that whatever this whole paragraph is doing, it is a reason for what he Peter has said immediately previously. And what he says Previously is, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then for one, immediately after this passage, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm your ways with the same way of thinking. The, the, the whole passage is intended to be illustrative of this basic point, mm-hmm. that Christ obtained his glory through suffering, that we are to suffer as Jesus suffered. That is to say that we suffer in the hope of victory, in the hope of being made alive in the spirit. We can suffer even the pains of death, knowing that resurrection, just as we suffer with Christ, we will be raised with him. And that's where he goes in 4.1 and following. This is part of, you know, kind of going back now into 
the the main point, the main thesis of Peter, uh, of First Peter. He gives us he gives you a strategy for suffering, and at the heart of that strategy is this proclamation of Christ, this re- this resurrection of Christ as a proclamation of God's victory over death, over the demonic, over persecution, over anything that the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ has the victory over that. And so as you suffer in that, you can have this hope in you, Christ, the Lord of glory. You then suffer in the same way. Arm yourselves with the same think, way of thinking, suffering for Christ, in Christ, in the hope of, of, of resurrection. Amen. I think that's really good, wise uh, counsel. I mean, the the passage, 18 to 22, the majority of it, we probably can't understand. It really is that just that phrase of the um, spirits in prison, almost isolated alone. That really is the one that is confusing and, and makes it really challenging and difficult. The rest of it, we really can kind of get and understand the main uh, the main point the way you just outlined. So I think it's easy to kind of maybe throw the baby out with the bathwater when we shouldn't have to do that and really focus on the larger picture, even if we kind of run into a bit of a roadblock on one mm-hmm. section, but we shouldn't let that deter from the overall message. That is very clear and, and very comforting and and uh, very assuring and uh, and instills a lot of hope. And, and, and I think that's a real good, good advice because you know we're going to run into things like this in in other books in scripture uh, as well but uh, you know we have to remember to put that in the context of the overall message that is fairly clear and not to get too bogged down and frustrated i mean it's worthy of thought i mean you know we study passages like this uh and and try to do the best we can to discern that for the greater community around us but as reading strategies go, uh, right. it's definitely helpful to keep in mind what we do know and and draw a lot of comfort from that. And you know, Westminster says, not all scriptures alike plain unto itself. And it's a good thing to remember when you're reading a passage like this. How does this fit within the broader structure of the book, You know, as you're right. pointing out? And, and how do we... If it's going in a totally different direction, it's possible. I mean, it's possible an author can do that. An author can decide he's going to follow his whimsy, you know, and kind of go off onto a totally different topic than he was talking about for the rest of the letter. But that's not often the case. And so the kind of law of parsimony, you know, this this idea of just saying, okay, what interpretation answers the most amount of questions, not what interpretation raises the most amount of mysterious speculation for me. Right. And we all know those people who are kind of given to mysterious speculation. Well, and, and Peter is not, at least in First Peter, Peter is not want to go on rabbit trails. He, it's, this is a tight book. It's actually one of the rhetorically tighter books in the New Testament. Pa- Paul will interrupt himself and go off on on tangents from time to time. P- Peter, this this book from beginning to end has just a very smooth rhetorical flow to it. It's easy to outline. Um, it's easy to kind of see where the main structural uh, lines are. So, um, so it's a fun book. I like how, in closing, Peter has this reference to Babylon. Of course, kind of picking up again that exilic theme mm-hmm. that he begins with. That he's using the old language of Babylon to talk about 
the church. And there he also has a mention of Mark, which is significant for us because we just talked about uh, the book of Mark. And this is one of the reasons why some people, I don't think we got into this too much during the gospel uh, discussion, but why some people theorize that Mark is really Peter's gospel because Mark was traveling with and, and perhaps becoming a kind of scribe or biographer for the apostle. And so that we should see Mark's gospel as kind of Peter's perspective. Of course, that's speculative, but it's built off of passages and connections like this one. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, guys, for joining me for it. And it's just been great to walk through this. Uh, for those of you at home, if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Please go to the links on the show notes here and you can connect through and put in a question for a later episode for us to answer. If you'd like to know more about RTS Washington, we'd love to talk to you. You can come to rts.edu forward slash Washington. And I'd encourage you, actually, you could you could Google RTS Washington upcoming classes and pull up our summer schedule. We've got an incredible lineup of classes for summer 2022. And so if you'd be interested, we'd love to have you come join us for those intensive classes. Um, it's been great having this conversation. We look forward to being together with you again next time. And until then, I'll end with Peter's closing greeting. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Take care. Take care.